Well, I want to let you know it is good to be back. Yes, good. Don't know how many of you I talked to over the last few weeks. No, I'm not leaving. No, I'm not going anywhere. No. But I am back in every way, shape, and form because I began this message a few weeks ago in the middle of my sabbatical because I'm a glutton for punishment, thinking, well, I can get ahead. Although knowing, just knowing it would be in vain because I would get to the week of and would only pretend to have a full sermon. I'd certainly edit it. I would feel uncomfortable about it and so forth before the week is out. So Monday I had the sermon finished and Wednesday I was back into the drawing board. So I'm back. Um, Just because I want to start things off, I guess, controversially, I want to show two photos for you. The first here is a woman who held, probably still holds, liberal politics, screaming at the inauguration of Donald Trump. It is a a well-known picture. It's floated around Facebook or social media, and it's just the stereotype of a crying liberal. The other photo I'm about to show you is actually a screenshot of a YouTube video where someone, presumably liberal, has put together for our viewing pleasure a two-hour montage of what he calls the beautiful meltdown of MAGA, or Make American Great Again. That is, Trump supporters in this film chronicling the loss and how many felt cheated, how many of the conservatives felt cheated over our last election. I wanted to show a third picture, a picture of Jesus. But call me traditional or Puritan, but I'm beginning to feel like pictures of white-faced European-looking Jesus doesn't do justice to probably how Jesus really looked. So to get biblical, I think Jesus can be depicted by words. Now these are my words, and if many of you might recall that I've said in previous sermons that I feel like Jesus sometimes speaks in two languages for us. He speaks in conviction, and he speaks in comfort. Some would say he's tough, and he's tender. He speaks in judgment, and prophetic boldness, and confrontation, but he also speaks in mercy, and warmth, and invitation. I think in response to these two, these two photos, and the emotions felt, provoked, whatever, Jesus would say, first of all, get over yourself. Obviously, the conviction side of things. For the person whose political champion was lost or cheated, or however their power, or however they lost their power, or if they never had their power, get over yourselves. I think Jesus might have the nerve to tell someone, so your dude or dudette didn't win, life will go on. <laughs> get over yourselves. Secondly, on the comfort side of things, this is the conviction of God's picture, but on the comfort side, Jesus might say, I'm on the throne. Now, I want you to hear that, and I specifically chose this phrase, absent of a word that we might think belongs there at times. Anyone a guess? Still. It would be between the I'm and the on. Some might think they might need to hear I'm still on the throne, but I think we need to hear who's on the throne, period. Who's on the throne when lesser kings or queens that we might favor are on the earthly thrones is always King Jesus. And King Jesus rules and is sovereign and he answers to nobody. 
I'm just convinced that King Jesus does not sweat when some rulers are on the throne. Nor does he cheer or rest easy when other rulers are on the throne. King Jesus rules and reigns when anybody else who thinks they rule and reign are on their little plastic chair of a throne. You know, in the Gospel accounts, I was thinking about this because I get paid to, (laughs) when Jesus mentions rulers over him in the earthly sense, I was thinking about all the times that Jesus mentions rulers over him in the earthly sense. We don't think about this much, but when Jesus walked the earth, And because we know him about 2,000 years removed and not contemporarily, we easily forget how he would have looked class-wise or station-wise. It's all over the gospel accounts if we look. But But Jesus is not at the palace. Jesus is not in the Congress or the Senate. I dare say he's not even a foreman at the mill or the owner of a ranch. Sure, he's a rabbi and a teacher and therefore a master, But that's like a glorified teaching babysitter of 12 stinky, sinning, sometimes clueless men. And then a church. So that's not really a uh, get out of our way, here comes our social superior type person. That's more like, who's that and why do they never stay put? He's walking around, they're traveling all the time. (laughs) Even so, Jesus, when looking at his political superior in the face who asks him, Are you a king then? Jesus, I'm convinced without blinking, responds, You say that I am. Right? Jesus unashamedly admits authority to his Roman superior Pilate. How about when Jesus talks about Herod? When some Pharisees tell Jesus that Herod wants to kill him, another social superior, the Jewish king over Israel, Jesus says out loud in public for all to hear, Go tell that fox. I don't need to say any more to make my point. Jesus, rural rabbi, not even the mill foreman Jesus, seems to believe something about Herod. Calls him a fox. My point is not to embolden Christians to call their political leaders bad names. It's more to point out Jesus' personal awareness of authority. (coughs) It comes back to that talk with Pilate. Where Jesus says to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus is not talking about above Pilate, that is Caesar. (laughs) Jesus is talking about God in heaven, Yahweh. Get over yourselves. I'm on the throne. Is it just me or does Jesus seem to operate on a different thinking level? He doesn't let the Herods, Pilots, and Caesars get to him. He talks about them as if they were really of almost no consequence. Jesus seems to be living in his own world and really his own nation. And he is. I'm very much a history buff. And one of the stories that have fascinated me and stuck with me since childhood is the Mayflower Pilgrims. Like everything else in our world, it's not politically correct. And if you look it up, lo and behold, it's full of reality. (laughs) And I don't know, I I still read about it, and I'm I'm still like a little Google-eyed schoolchild in awe of most of the story, despite some of the bad things, maybe the moral and 
morality that was lacking in, on some of the pilgrims' part. Maybe I'm naive, but I'm just quick to confess that I can't do anything about the moral choices of people in history, but I can still be in awe of an event without condoning any of the evil involved. It's actually how we keep reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament. We see all these flawed human beings, but we still hold them up in the best of their days as examples of faith. Believe it or not, there's no place in the Bible that talks about old English settlers migrating to the North American coast, so I don't intend to preach on it. (laughs) However, I do borrow from the general spiritual feelings of that story, and I borrow from a passage that seemed to be a bit dear to the ethos of that event, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. And I just want to take the next two weeks to look over this small passage. But are you ready for a spoiler before we read it and dig in? Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 is what Jesus was showing us in the gospel accounts. Jesus did operate in a world different than other people might operate. Do you think other run-of-the-mill people would confess to fancying themselves a king in front of a Roman leader like Pilate? Do you think Jewish teachers in a conquered land would publicly call their own Jewish king a fox? But Jesus knows something. Jesus knows himself to be a stranger and a pilgrim. We're how long in, and that was my only my introduction, so aren't you glad I'm back today? I do invite you to stand in honor of hearing the word of God. Again, we're in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. We're in the middle of a chapter here on a biblical definition of faith, which we will dive into more as we start unpacking. Because of the wording of these few verses, I'm going to be in the New King James this week and next. Don't worry, I'm not permanently going there now. So just the next two weeks we'll be in the New King James. Hebrews 11, beginning with verse uh, 13. We're going to read through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray. Father, as we look into what this means, being a stranger and a pilgrim, as we look into these Old Testament examples of faith, it is my desire that your voice is heard. It's my desire that I would be out of the way, that our own situations that we're dealing with father if if in these moments they would only cloud your voice would you push them aside father perhaps you have intended to speak to those conditions today perhaps you haven't i am convinced that whatever you wish to say is what we need to hear today so i just pray that you would be speaking thank you again for jesus christ his death his resurrection we pray these things in his name amen you may be seated Can you imagine boarding a ship, crossing an ocean that you've heard horror stories from other sailors who have crossed it, 
landing in a land where you've heard what the 1600s English heard who already lived in those lands. Can you imagine doing that? Wanting to do that. What one cannot escape when looking at this historical story of pilgrims on the Mayflower is that it took incredible faith. It took hardcore faith and determination to board a ship, sail across a stormy sea into a wilderness where the only people that occupied the land were actually kind of the stuff of horror stories for them. Why? Lots of reasons. Persecution. Wanting to build their own home free from religious laws placed on them. Wanting to escape worldliness and practice their own city on a hill to the best of their ability by God's grace. This sort of faith that that moves people to vivid, shocking actions is what we see throughout Hebrews 11. Uh, We'll uncover some of this as we move along the passage. Since I'm such a fast preacher, we're just going to cover verse 13 this week. Um, And as we do, we'll be following this progression, faithful ends, faithful vision, and a faithful confession. Faithful ends, faithful vision, and faithful confession. Are you prepared to end well? One thing that has challenged me is a book by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. And he challenges the Christian by saying, Oh, how many lives are wasted by people who believe that the Christian life means simply avoiding badness and providing for the family. So there is no adultery, no stealing, no killing, no embezzlement, embezzlement, no fraud, just lots of hard work during the day and lots of TV and PG-13 videos in the evening during quality family time and lots of fun stuff on the weekend, woven around church mostly. This is life for millions of people, wasted life. We were created for more, far more. Ouch. He calls this the avoidance ethic. When Christianity is reduced to what we avoid because we're Christians, not what we do. Are you headed for a faithful end? Is your faithful end going to be one of what you did not do or what you accomplished by God's grace? When we stand before King Jesus and he asks us, What did you do in service for my kingdom? I wonder if we start saying, Well, I didn't watch too much bad TV. I didn't cheat my friends or neighbors I wonder if he will thunderously repeat, what did you do in service of my kingdom? Verse 13, again the first part of it, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. Faithful ends. These all, again we're speaking of the early patriarchs, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob in context here. And I want you to hear the obituary for them again. They all died in faith, not having received the promises. Their lives, when ended, was building towards something. And the building towards something was not this, avoiding bad things. The Apostle Paul said memorably near the end of his life to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He didn't say that because he accepted Christ at some point and then faithfully attended church the rest of his life. No, he he said that after planting churches 
walking hundreds of miles on foot, experiencing persecution, facing starvation, facing imprisonment, discipling future leaders of the church, challenging political authorities as he faced trials. What is your life building towards? By God's grace, has He entrusted you to a legacy? I'm afraid some of us are too settled with what God has done in us so far. But chapter 11 of Hebrews is not all about how the likes of Abraham had faith in God to be saved, and so he sat contently pondering that one fact all his life. No, he... He progressed in life and he came to an end faithfully. He left his homeland. He had a child of promise at a ripe old age. He became the father of the people of God by his faith and the father of the Hebrew people. He came to a faithful end. Abraham died in that faith. Abraham died knowing that God had called him out of a savage, idolatrous homeland to a promised land. Abraham died knowing that what God had promised him, descendants as numerous as the stars. Abraham died not having the promised land, nor having the many descendants he was promised, but he died still believing, though not receiving. And you might say, Kevin, I'm not Paul. I'm not Abraham. And I'm just asking, are we thinking big enough when it comes to faith? Because attending church faithfully every week is not big enough. And I'd hazard a guess that God has something bigger lined up for you to do. Feeling convicted or or exasperated, we might ask, well, fine, what does that look like? We need to have faithful vision. Faithful ends are a result of faithful vision. You know, the Mayflower Pilgrims, apparently when they started off on the voyage, they were 102 in number. When they arrived in North America, they were 101, one having died, one having been born in the crossing. By the next spring, they were down to 50. Many times, they'd think about returning to England, but their vision, whether they accomplished it or not, a fresh start where they could worship God the way they felt was right to and kill some Quakers later on. That's another story. But that kept them going. The author of Hebrews tells us that it was faithful vision that led the saints of old to faithful ends. We read again in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them and embraced them. They had faithful vision. The chapter of of 11 of Hebrews opens with this well-known verse, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I'm just convinced of this, that, that just how a bunch of English settlers could board a boat and go to a new frontiers and face hardship, stare death and disease in the face and stay the course, is perhaps there was some substance of what they were ultimately hoping for. Indeed, maybe they felt they had evidence, even though that they never quite saw, or maybe they could never quite convince any skeptical onlooker. I can't make any moral judgments about that situation, but what I can say in the context of Hebrews 11 is that undoubtedly Abraham shocked his homeland when he said, I need to leave my gods. This place, all that's familiar, and head out into the unknown. 
skeptical onlookers could have thought that he was crazy. He not only hoped in fearful hesitancy, oh, maybe I should do this, but upon faith, hearing the word of God, he had a weighty hope, a hope with substance. And though he died before the promised land was fulfilled, it was as good as seeing the land anyways. His faith was evidence enough of what he did not see. Beyond the promise of a promised land, Jesus declares that Abraham had faithful vision to see the ultimate end of his promises. Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The sort of faith that Abraham had was the sort of faith that places the likes of Jesus front and center. As the author of Hebrews says, this is hope. The substance of things hoped for. You know, many politicians, when they're not running on campaigns of fear, they try to run on campaigns of hope. But seeing how politicians fail, the hope usually loses its substance. You can trust the substance of the hope that faith gives. You can trust the substance of the hope that faith gives. The passage says that the promises were seen afar off. Even so, the faithful are assured of them, so much so that these promises are embraced. One commentator would say that the original word behind embraced denotes the kind of embrace friends make after a long separation. Our hearts cleave to these promised blessings with the utmost confidence and love and delight. Friends, they are reality as far as everything else is concerned. Do you have faithful vision? Is your vision of God big enough to embrace? Is your faithful vision the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen? Is it weighty? Does what God do in here, in your heart, and say in here, Translate to action. Aspirations. Does he give you the faith of strangers and pilgrims? What is your your ur that you need to leave and the Canaan that you need to conquer? What is the ark that you need to build? I asked a few moments ago that by God's grace, has he entrusted you to a legacy? <clears throat> One cannot walk these halls in this building and look at some of the pictures Or look at some of the signs as you enter Woodland and not know an answer. In the providence of of God in the late 1800s, early 1900s, some Quakers decided to settle this hill. And in the providence of God ever so often, the latest being these past two years, God brings a mission field for this community of believers to continue. It's great commission. Now, I'm not saying any Christian ever moved to Woodland to shirk their responsibilities in the great commission or to live an avoidance ethic Christian life. But I wonder if he can give us faithful vision that will lead us to faithful ends. There are people who have moved in who need to be ministered to. And I've said this before too. Some of us may be given visions like Peter and Paul, missionary endeavors, big endeavors. Others of us might be given the visions of Andrew, where all we see in Andrew is connect Jesus to Peter. Is there a Peter or Paul in Woodland today that needs you to be Andrew for them? 
Catch my drift. Don't make woodland your avoidance ethic castle. Make woodland your place where great vision can be cast. And we live in a world today where you can have faithful vision for means far outside of woodland while still staying in woodland. Faithful vision, the sort of vision that God calls us to have, comes from a faithful confession. <coughs> confession is more than words. It is a, a declaration of identity, a, decla- a declaration of who one is, who they confess to be, and And by definition, their actions will verify their confession. Just like James essentially says that a person's faith, by definition, is proven by their works. Because if a person has faith but not works, that faith is dead. So by definition, it's a non-value, it's not faith, period. As far as confessions are concerned, I think some Christians historically have thrown out the baby with the bathwater. Quakers largely prided themselves on actually being very creedless without confession until some splits started happening in the early to mid-1800s, and then some evangelical Quakers felt like they needed to declare what Quakers historically believe. The sort of faithful saints that the author of Hebrews is describing here, saints who come to faithful ends, without receiving the promises, who had faithful vision, though they didn't receive the promises, but they saw them from afar, they were assured and they embraced them. These saints had a faithful confession. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What does this mean? It's perhaps never been easier to confess with great gratitude and joy and the fullest sincerity of the declaration that in 2020 and 2021, this world is not my home. (laughs) Right? As far as the world we're in, tainted by sin, fallen and corrupted, we must confess to be and we must embrace the identity that we are strangers and pilgrims. One commentator, Adam Clark, would explain that strangers are persons who are out of their own country and in a foreign land. The CSB would use foreigners here. And then pilgrims, Clark says, are folks who sojourn only uh, for a time in a foreign land, but they don't intend to plant roots and get naturalized in that country. Strangers and pilgrims. Foreigners and people just passing by. Let me... Did you recognize this about the Old Testament saints? I'll be honest and say I didn't. But they were strangers and pilgrims. One of my commentators points out, here are revealed a depth of perception and largeness of view in the patriarchs not often recognized. I used to just think, well, Abraham leaving his homeland, heading out to an unseen promised land, lots of descendants. And I believe the author of Hebrews is saying it was bigger than that for the patriarchs. It goes back to Jesus' mind-boggling statement I already mentioned from John that your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Do we believe what Jesus says here literally? I don't know about you, but for me, I read Genesis. I guess I just suppose kind of nonchalantly, well, Abraham heard God's voice, he made some mistakes, but with the blind faith he had, he just kind of trekked out into Canaan, he did the best he could. 
But the author of Hebrews and Jesus and John 8, are, I believe, they're saying, no, it's much bigger than that. Their faithful vision was bigger than we can imagine, and their confession was as strangers and pilgrims on the earth. He looked and rejoiced to see my day, said Jesus. In the milieu of 2020, 2021, COVID, fear, blah, 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 I just want to say, have the faith of strangers and pilgrims. To be a stranger and pilgrim should empower someone. And it should come back to to King Jesus and how I opened this sermon, something you'd miss about Jesus, something that I personally probably would have chalked it up to just, well, Jesus knows he's God, so that's why he can look at all these these politicians in the face and say what he says. I believe that Jesus knew that he was a stranger and a pilgrim upon the earth as well. This sort of, who is Herod? Who is Pilate? Who is Caesar to me? Says the used-to-be carpenter and now rural rabbi from Nazareth and Capernaum. Who's the president? Why do I care? Says the pastor of a rural church in central Idaho, as if I had something over him. Well, it's not so much I have something over him. He and I are equals, so the Bible tells us. But I know that this place is not my home. This world is not my home. I'm a stranger and pilgrim. And there are a lot of things the world wants you to be concerned with. There's a lot of things that your political party wants you to be concerned with. There's a lot of things that the president or whatever voices you're listening to, Fox, CNN, Barf, all the, whatever, <laughs> wants you to be concerned with. But as it comes back to King Jesus, who was the supreme stranger and pilgrim, the king of heaven who sojourned in earth, you know, I'm always moved by the scene where some screaming voices had plans for Jesus. It was right after Jesus multiplied the fishes and the loaves, and John tells us, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. They wanted Jesus to set up a kingdom right then and there. But Jesus already had a kingdom. He didn't need another one. (laughs) Jesus has a kingdom. But for the time being, he was a stranger and pilgrim among the other kingdoms of the earth. He was only passing through. And he didn't need to get too attached to the kingdoms of the earth. We're going to talk about the homeland that awaits strangers and pilgrims next week. But for now... I want us to tap in and saturate on the faith that comes from knowing that we're strangers and pilgrims. Think about this. I'll bring it to you front and center. I remember when Trump was running for president and a bunch of people said, if he gets elected, I'm a moving to blank. And I've heard a few people since the election of Biden, I can't think of another place to even go. (laughs) And I tell you what, if who's in the office has that much of an effect on you, then you should be able to embrace this to the fullest. Joe Biden is not your king. Donald Trump was never your king either. Jesus is your king. This means you live under our King Jesus law and you live to please King Jesus and you submit complete allegiance and loyalty to King Jesus. And it should foster an emotional separation from the kingdoms of this world. Of greater concern is the kingdom of Jesus and if you and I are doing our part to make it grow. You know... 
When political exiles from another nation moved to the USA and they lived in their own enclaves and in their neighborhoods to keep their culture alive, while, you know, a bunch of angry conservatives are telling them to naturalize and speak our language, nevertheless, they offer a good example of how exiles of Jesus' kingdom are to operate in our own exiled lands. Paul tells the Corinthians, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, does this mean we have rights to just stand around and watch nations burn under our noses while we do nothing to save it? I'll tell you this. If you're hearing, be dispassionate about nationalism or even patriotism, I'll be blunt. Yes, I believe that's a good thing in my mind. But like I've said to some before, the three greatest commandments of Jesus was not love God, love people, and be proud to be an American. Get over yourselves, and I'm on the throne, right? If you're offended by that notion, find me a passage where Jesus tells me to be a nationalist or a patriot, and I will repent publicly. In the meantime, I'm not saying be dispassionate about seeing injustice or unfairness or suffering. We're exiles. So what Jeremiah wrote the exiles of his day in Babylon applies to us, I believe. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. And seek the peace of the city where I have called you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Has God given you, stranger or pilgrim, if you faithfully confess such things? Has God given you faithful vision for a faithful end? Don't be afraid to dream big. Don't be afraid to ask God, what's the ark you're calling me to build? Am I an Andrew or a Peter in the waiting? And I don't think on the list of the things that you can ask God, or do you just want me to avoid bad things and attend church every Sunday until I die? (laughs) God says you got the wrong number if you say that, right? Let's pray.